never going to be the same. R and R. That's the way to say it too. R and R, because Jim is a Texas guy. He can't help it. He can't help it. How many years have you guys been at Dillon Community Church? You know, nineteen. Nineteen. Wow. Nineteen. That's amazing. That's a long time. Yeah. Yeah, I know. Put up with me most of that time. That's exactly right. That's good. There. How's that? Is that better? Better. She hasn't been able to look at you in the eye. Ever. <laughs> when uh, when we were all singing, they were sitting about two thirds of the way back, and when they started singing in, uh, earlier today, Jim just walked out and he says, "It's been good." <laughs> we are going to miss you. Thank you. You've had a significant impact on our church and. A lot of lives, a lot of guys, and uh, thank you for your ministry. So we want to pray for you. You want to pray and I'll pray? Lord, thanks for this great family, for uh, who they represent that is generations now. Thank you for their heart for you, their great passion and love for people, their ministry in this county as they serve uh, families and ranches in those uh, amazing situations that they've gotten to be in in those circumstances, but also just others around here as they've shown love and, and uh, deep passion for you. Thank you for the example that they've been to me, to Jenny, to our family, and to so many others here. And we pray that you would bless them as they move away from this place, move down where there's more oxygen in the air <laughs> and uh, more opportunity for them to build new relationships and impact others. Father, I agree. Thank you for the blessing they have been to our church. Soon after I got here, they were so warm to welcome me. And I'm just grateful for the years of ministry they've had here. And Lord, I know that wherever they're going, the church there will be blessed. And uh, thanks for keeping them safe and healthy and sending them on their way. We will miss them. We will see them again. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, on the back of your uh, bulletin, uh, women, don't forget the retreat coming up. I'm sure there's still room there. Don't know if that's true or not. If not, tell them to squeeze you in. The, um, and remember what I said last week, your husbands will watch the kids. I'll let you work that out in your marriages. I'm just volunteering them for you, okay, so you can get away. But also at the very top, I want to call attention to uh, this. Um, I've been here two and a half years, and uh, staff and elders, we've done a lot of work in a lot of areas of the church, and so we've been asking the question lately, how do we, how do we create ministry, how do we generate ministry that allows us to have even greater impact in, the, in our county in ways uh, that our county feels the need? For instance, uh, we have a very high degree of divorce rate, brokenness in marriages, um, we have a pretty significant uh, addiction issues. And so we've been talking. We've also been talking to Agape and some of the other churches about how we might, uh, where we would partner together and where we might kind of move in different directions and specialize. What would that look like? So I personally am ready to do more in the county than we've been doing. We have a great outreach through benevolence, uh, food bank, all of that. And uh, I'm looking to find ways to to be a blessing to the people that are just hurting uh, in perhaps non-financial ways. 
So this Tuesday from 6.30 to 7.30 in the evening, we're going to have a meeting just to talk about it. And if that's something that's on your heart to just be involved in the conversation, I'd like to invite you to come. It doesn't mean you have to commit yourself. I hope you will do that at some point. But uh, help us think through what does it look like to create more holistic ministry within the lives of the people in our county. So think about that and come to it. Um, um, I, I don't know if Mark announced that he did in the first service. I was out there talking to people. I know it surprises you. But he, uh, uh, John Fisher went to be the Lord. And so we did his memorial service last week. And I want to stop and pray just a moment for Lauren and the family. The, uh, she's had a house full of relatives for two or three weeks now, and they're all leaving today and tomorrow. And so for those of you that have been through that journey, you know what's coming at the end of the week, the loneliness as she begins to try to make sense of life without a husband. So I want to pray for her. Also, if you've seen any of the international news, uh, many things we could look at, but uh, most recently I saw that um, Nepal voted on their constitution declaring them a secular state which gives all the religions including Christianity freedom to practice and so India has uh, closed the borders and all the border towns have been closed so they can't get goods in and uh, remember Nepal is a country that has been racked by thousands of earthquakes since the big one <clears throat> four or five months ago so that's a, something we should lift up and, and then I'm grateful to Matt Best. He had his surgery, had major surgery this week, and he's at home healing and uh, is doing well. And I know that uh, there are other prayer requests, some of which I do know, some of which I don't. Things are going on in your lives. Don't mean to leave you out. I'm just highlighting some things each week that we can lift to the Lord. So let's take a moment and pray. Father, um, Lord, I am grateful for John. I'm grateful for his faith, Lord, to the very end. And um, his his willingness to just love his family well uh, in such a devastating, devastating disease. Um, I'm still in shock, Lord, that six weeks ago we were standing here talking, not even aware, and here he is now with you. I pray for Lauren and the family. I pray that you would continue to watch over them, be very authentic and real in their lives. Perhaps during this period of time when the loneliness begins to settle in, that you would show yourself to her and the children in very fresh ways new ways, Lord, so that they would draw nearer to you. I pray, Lord, for the international conflicts. We just mentioned one. There are many around the world, the one between India and Nepal. I pray that you would resolve this in a peaceful way and get the goods and the aids and the supplies they need flowing again. Thank you, Lord, for Matt. Thank you for uh, answering our prayer and helping him to come through surgery safely and that he's home healing. Help him to heal well and strong. And Lord, the needs that, that we didn't mention, there are many here. Some we know about, many we don't, but you do. And I pray that you would continue to be a God who intervenes, a God who engages, a God who um, shows yourself strong on our behalf and listens to us. Thank you. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Okay, we're in a series uh, asking what it means to be wholly committed to God out of James. So I've been asking two questions of you. Well, several actually, but I brought two today. What is keeping you from being wholly committed to God? What is the obstacle in your individual lives that keep you from just going that one step further and <clears throat> selling out for the Lord, uh, not being double-minded, putting it behind you and moving on? What is that? Or another way to ask a similar question is, do you believe that God is good in all that he does? Do you really believe that? Uh, that's a question you have to answer at some point. And some of you have been through really hard times. I've been through some hard times. And can you walk away from that 
and still answer the question that God is good in all that he does. Um, in other words, if you take all these constellation of questions and put them together, we're asking, what does it mean to live out your faith in authentic ways, in real ways? Not with one foot in the last life. Both feet wholly committed to God. James uses four examples from the Old Testament on how we might possibly answer these questions. Abraham, Rahab, Lot, and Elijah. We looked at Abraham last week and uh, saw that he makes a great example of what it means to obey the Lord and follow the Lord. From the day the Lord called him, he just was consistently there. Kind of reminds me of, I uh, don't know if this is a good analogy or not, but <clears throat> kind of reminds me of the difference between those of you who came to the Lord through Christian families and those of you who came to the Lord through a pretty destructive lifestyle, whatever that happened to have looked like. When we were in Germany as missionaries working with young men and women, uh, I got to the point, a little bit cynical, where every time somebody came in, they said I was raised in a Christian family. I'd go, oh boy, why don't you go to another ministry? Because I found that they typically had all the answers and zero passion. And um, I didn't know what to do about that. And so as I began to think through the theology of it, I realized that that's actually a gift from the Lord because some of you have been saved out of something. You've been saved from something. Maybe it's a life of addiction to drugs or prostitution or who knows what it is. But you know what it's like to be rescued. Others of you have had the blessing to be raised in Christian homes where you didn't have the, the uh, chance to experience that. That is a good thing. And so the question then becomes, we ask the question in Germany, how do we help these young people coming out of Christian homes? And I realized that Exposing them to sin in a vicarious way helped them grow in appreciation. So we would go to a, um, an AIDS hospice center or a, a drug rehab or a soup kitchen or something when we were there and let them see sin up close and personal. And they didn't have to experience it personally, but they could grow in their love and appreciation for the Lord Jesus at what they avoided. So some of you have managed to avoid some really destructive things, and others of you have been saved out of really destructive things. And perhaps Abraham and Rahab represent these two, these two poles, these two extremes. And we're going to take a look at them. Today we're going to look at a Canaanite woman who's a prostitute. Her name is Rahab, who ends up in the line of Christ. Wow. God is amazing. In order to understand James's use of Rahab, we have to go back and kind of build the backstory, look at the history behind it. So we're going to look at the basic story out of Joshua 2. So they're at the end of the 40 years of wandering. They're not, really not military people. These are the children of the slaves that came out of, Israel, uh, out of Egypt. They were, uh, you may remember the story, they sent 12 spies in. Ten of them came back and said, run, just run. They're bigger than us. And God said, well, you should have trusted me. Now that you did that, you are going to wander for 40 years. And you're not going to enter the promised land, but your children will. So now we're talking about the children. The children, are, they're standing on the uh, border, the threshold of Canaan, getting ready to go into the land to take it. And um, their first challenge is going to be a big one, Jericho. They have to take Jericho. So Joshua sends two spies into the land, and they make their way to Jericho, specifically the house of Rahab. Joshua 2, verse 1. So bear with me as I just work you through the basic story. Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. Go look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. 
What are these Israelite spies doing with a prostitute? We'll come back to that. It actually plays a role in the story. They're immediately recognized for who they are. Verse 2, the king of Jericho was told, Look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab, Bring out the men who came to you and entered your house, because they have come to spy out the whole land. So, they have to rely on Rahab to do two things. One is hide them, and the other one is lie about them. Wow, what a place to be. They got themselves into this mess, but they have to rely on Rahab. Verse 4, the woman who had taken the two men in and hidden them, she said, yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they had come from. So at dusk, when it was time to close the city gates, they left. I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly. Maybe you'll catch up with them. But she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax that she had laid bare, laid out on the roof. So the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of Jordan. And as soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. So she had to both hide them and lie about them. So then she acknowledges to these spies uh, that their God is the one true God. She confesses that. And that they had all heard of his deliverance. Verse 8. Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord, and there the Lord is all capitals, L-O-R-D, this is the proper name of God, this is that one true God. I know that your God has given this land to you, and that a great fear of you has fallen on us, so that we all who live in this country, we're melting in fear because of you, because of what your God has done. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard it, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. And here's her confession. For the Lord, your God, this one true living God, the Lord your God is God in heaven and on earth below. So, she's kind of stuck. So she makes a bargain with them. She bargains that in response for her help, which she has already protected them by lying and hiding them, they promise to protect her and her family. Verse 12. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, that you will save us from death. So what do the spies do? They agree to the bargain. And they provide her with a crimson cord to hang from the window because she's on the outer wall of the city. Here's what they say. Our lives for your lives. If you don't tell what we are doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us the land. So she let them down by a rope through the window, for the house she lived in was part of the city wall. She said to them, go to the hills so that the pursuers will not find you. Hide yourself there for three days until they return and go on your way. Now the men said to her, this oath you made us swear will not be binding on us unless when we enter the land, you have tied this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And unless you have brought your father and mother, your brother and all your family into your house, if any of them go outside of the house into the street, their blood will be on their own heads. We'll not be responsible. 
As for those who are in the house with you, their blood will be on our head if a hand is uh, laid on them. But if you tell what we are doing, we will be released from the oath you made us swear. Agreed, she replied. I love that. Didn't even hesitate. Agreed. We got a deal. So she sent them away and they departed and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. So the the spies escaped and they report their findings to Joshua, verse 22. When they left, they went into the hills and stayed there for three days until the pursuers had searched all along the road and returned without finding them. Then the two men started back. They went down out of the hills, forded the rivers, came to Joshua, son of Nun, and told him everything that had happened to them. They said to Joshua, the Lord has surely given the whole land into our hands. All the people are melting in fear because of us. They learned how the people felt from Rahab. In Joshua 6, when they actually go in and attack Jericho, a story which almost every child that goes through uh, Sunday school knows, march around the city seven times, the walls come down, the trumpets sound, all that. You heard some of it this morning. Then uh, Rahab's uh, family is saved. They don't die. Now, that's the basic story. Thanks for giving me time just to work you through that because there's some observations we need to think about to help begin to help us understand why James chose this particular woman and this character. First of all, in the story, she's the one that's named. She and Joshua. The spies are not. Right off the bat, that tells us that the author of Joshua is highlighting this woman for a particular reason. And it's in our best interest to understand why and figure it out. She's pictured as the one in charge. Uh, The king's men make their demand to her, not to a husband, not to a father. That tells us something. Uh, We have enough evidence to know that the fact that her house was on the outside outer wall combined with this piece of information probably tells us that she was ostracized within her own community. Uh, She is a prostitute after all. By the way, when you look in uh, Jewish theology, they try to downplay this. They try to downplay that she was a prostitute, and they often leave that language off, and they highlight that she was in charge of an inn, okay, instead of a brothel. Because they're trying to downplay these two embarrassing things in their history that God uses a prostitute, and what what were these Israelite men doing at the brothel in the first place? We'll come back to that. So, (laughs) So they downplay it. And guess what? When we get into the New Testament, every place she appears, they run the flag up the flagpole. She is Rahab the prostitute. They want to emphasize the fact that she is a prostitute, it seems. I think the reason is, is because we're getting a glimpse of what grace looks like. No person, no person is too bad. No person has done things too horrible to be received from the Lord if they turn in faith. So in the New Testament, all the way through, they highlight that. Okay, so it raises the question of whether her house is actually a brothel. But in any event, the story in Joshua is primarily about her and not the spies. Even though the beginning of the story, it's about the spies. They're sent into the land, and the story immediately reverses and becomes a story about Rahab. This heathen prostitute is the one who confesses the greatness of God. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. So she misleads the king's men. The men sent from the king to ask her, where are the men? She proposes, she's the one who proposes the bargain for protection. She's the one that tells the spies how to avoid detection. 
you almost get the feeling that these spies are a little bit inept, which they might very well have been because they're not soldiers. They're wanderers. They're children of slaves. And so she's the one that takes control of the situation. This all demonstrates incredible faith. In other words, Joshua depicts a Gentile, not an Israelite, and not just only any Gentile, but a Canaanite Gentile, a female, not a male, and a prostitute, not a woman of virtue. That's who Joshua depicts as the one who opens the door for the Israelite invasion of Canaan. Boy, we've heard these stories before, haven't we? John 4, Jesus sat at the well and talked to who? A man of upstanding, high class in Israel? No, a Samaritan woman. Who the Israelites never spoke to Samaritans. And not just a Samaritan, but a woman. Not just a woman, but a woman not of virtue. She'd have five husbands, and the man she was with right then wasn't her husband. It says something about grace. There's a picture in there somewhere of grace, who the Lord is. All right, in James, James holds up Rahab alongside of Abraham. They are portraits. They are examples of, two examples of the same principle. Faith without works is dead. But boy, are they different. He makes no reference to her faith. In fact, let's just turn to James. There's only one verse. But it's a powerful one. Verse 25 of chapter 2. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them in a different direction? He says nothing about her faith. He highlights Abraham's faith. He doesn't even call attention to her faith. Well, it makes sense when you understand the story. He doesn't call attention to the reward she gets either. He calls attention to her action, to what she did. So let's compare them. Let's put them side by side and see what we learn by looking at Abraham and Rahab. How are they different? Well, number one, they're different in uh, reputation. He says uh, in verse 21, was not our father Abraham considered righteous? So Abraham is called our father, but what's Rahab called? The prostitute. She's the prostitute. So their reputation is very different. They're different in their physical deliverance. Rahab's life, unlike Abraham, depended, depended on um, her faith. If she says nothing to these two spies, she already has enough information to know she's dead. Because she saw what they did to the two kings before Jericho. Utterly destroyed everything. So she knows that this invading army is about to wipe out her entire city. And that means her. So her life depends on it. So she offers protection for the spies. Abraham doesn't do that. Where did they, why did they come? Why did they come to her house? They're in to spy the land, Right? I mean, logically, there's only two reasons why they went to her house, right? One is to enjoy her trade or for lodging. But either way you look at it, it's a business transaction until she figures out who they are. When Rahab decided to hide them, their relationship went beyond a simple business transaction. In making the bargain, Rahab 
transferred her allegiance from the king of Jericho to Israel's God. That was the step. When she took the spies in, which is what's highlighted here, she gave lodging to the spies. When she took them in and protected them, that was the decision point at which she crossed the line and transferred her allegiance. Now that her life was in danger, she took on the responsibility to direct their way home. Her whole life is vested in that they follow her instructions. Two dead spies equals a dead Rahab. Right? It's critical that they follow her instructions. It is imperative that they survive. That's her only chance, and she knows it. That's faith, folks. That's faith right down to the toenails. She was now trusting in her new God, not the two spies. The moment they left her house, she had no say in the matter from that time on. She has demonstrated that she has irrevocably committed herself to her new God. That's what she's doing. She was now a friend of God, not a friend of the world. Now let's go over one chapter in James, chapter 4, and listen to what he says. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. And she becomes an example of someone who cut all ties. She's in one world, the world of her people in Jericho, and in one decision, she steps into another world. She didn't do this. She cut all ties. She became a traitor for faith. You know, the sayings of Jesus, man, are they hard. They're difficult. Unless you take up your cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. You know, crucifixion only, only was around for about 70 years in the history of the world. It just had to be the 70 years that Jesus was there, and he talked, talked about it. And if, if you had been there, most of you are, are uh, middle class or poor. And so what would have happened is, you in our culture, you would, have, you would have known what crucifixion's all about. You would have known that the wealthy elite, the politicians, they never went through crucifixion. It was the poor people and the criminals who went through crucifixion. So when Jesus talks about taking up your cross, he's talking about torture. He's talking about execution. He's talking about giving everything up everything for the sake of the kingdom. Is that a hard saying? When approached and said, your mothers and your brothers are outside, what did he say? Who are my brothers and brothers? Those who obey the will of my father. Wow. Later on, he says, unless you hate your father and your brother, your mother and sister, you cannot be my disciple. You can't keep one foot in both worlds. You just can't. That's the point James is making. You got to choose. What's your choice? What is keeping you from being wholly committed to God? Hmm. James has deliberately chosen contrasting examples to illustrate his point. Just as Abraham's sacrifice of his son was the greatest test of his faith, so Rahab's decision to hide the spies was the greatest test of her faith. They both staked everything on this God. Abraham walked away from his people group, left his land, and went to a different place. Rahab turned her back on her people group and placed her entire life in the hands of God through two spies who don't even know their names. 
They both placed their futures in God's hand. Neither were double-minded. Listen to James's opening statement in James. If any of you lacks wisdom, James 1, 5, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. Those who doubt should not think they will receive anything from the Lord because they are double-minded and unstable in all that they do. Neither Abraham nor Rahab were double-minded. They made their decision and they lived with it. They went for it. They sold out to Jesus. So what's keeping you from doing that? The use of Abraham and Rahab give us these two bookends, if you will, two ends of the continuum of not only the, te- the, the range of what testing looks like, but what it means to live by faith. We've moved from partiality, which is early in James 2. Yes, it is absolutely wrong to show partiality and favoritism. It is. We should love everyone equally, no matter your background. We've moved from that to giving up a loved one, that's Abraham sacrificing his son, to risking one's life. That's what she did. She put her life on the line. It's interesting, your family, we don't know any details about her family. They don't appear to have been consulted in the decision. Uh, their life is resting in her hands as well. She's the one that made the bargain on behalf of her family. So they're enjoying the experience of her faith, ultimately. Faith in Christ covers all aspects of life. So what's keeping you from being uh, wholly committed to God? I can't answer that question. I can, I can barely answer it for me. You have to look in the mirror, your own mirror, to figure that one out. Let me ask it another place, another way. What, pla- what are the places in your life where you keep one foot in the world? Where is that place in your own life? Where you have problems, you're afraid to just wholly commit. Hmm. Father, thank you. Thank you for Rahab. <clears throat> Lord, not only for what she represents to us, but Lord, uh, the way she is such a great example, a perfect example of what it means to, to completely sell out to you at the expense of her own life. Thank you for that story. She has become one of my heroes, and I just love reading about her. Thank you. In your son's name we pray. Amen. I'm going to ask the ushers to come forward. and Thank you for your generosity. Just love you. Thank you for taking good care of us.